You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. New Song students, y'all ready to kick off a new series tonight? Okay, get out your Bible. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 3. Get your journal out. Get your phone out if you're going to use it to take notes. You can take notes on an offering envelope. There is no excuses. Somebody say no excuses. Lean in with me tonight. Tonight's very special because we are kicking off a brand new series entitled Romans. Is there any? That's right. Kason's excited. Um, Is there anybody who wants to take a guess at what they think this series is going to be about? (laughs) Yes. You guys are so smart. Romans. This is going to be. This is a book study on the book of Romans. This is the second book study we've gone through in New Song Students, students, in New Song Students. And um, if you don't know this, there's two different types and styles of preaching. There's topical, and then there's expositional or expository. Now, topical is exactly what it sounds like. It's when you pick a topic, and then you go to the Word of God, and you see what it says. And that's what we do here a lot at New Song Students. Like, hot takes, that was a topical series. So you go, you pick a topic, go to the word, see what it says, but then you've got expository, which means the opposite. Instead of picking a topic first and then going to the word, you just go to the word and you see what topics rise to the surface. Now, I enjoy preaching and listening to both styles of preaching, topical and expository, and I think all of us in this room should be getting a healthy dose of both of those styles And that's exactly why this year we planned to go through the book of Romans. Now, this series, I just want to set all of our expectations on the same level because the book of Romans is 16 chapters, y'all. And if we were to take this this series and to just do one chapter a week, we'd be in this series for how many weeks? 16 weeks. Now, we're not doing that. But even if we did that, Even if we did a 16-week long series on the book of Romans, I want to tell you something that's really cool about God's Word. We would just scratch the surface of all of the revelation in God's Word. In fact, as I was preparing for this uh, series, I got this, I picked up this 365-day devotional written by this guy named Mark Driscoll, and it's a devotional based out of the book of Romans. And in the introduction, he said something that just put the fear of God in me. (laughs) He said that when he was a young pastor... He started a Book of Romans series, and he was doing it expositorily. I don't know if that's a way you can say expositorily, but he's preaching through Romans verse by verse. He said he got through five weeks of the series. He only made it to chapter two before giving up because it was too much of a heavy task. Then what he did was he waited 30 years, studied the Book of Romans for 30 years before coming back and doing the series again. And when I read that before starting our series, that kind of scared me a little bit because I was like, great, I'm a young pastor and I'm about to try and tackle Romans. Here we go. But here's what I want you to see about the beauty of that. I want you to see that, like, guys, God's word is living and it's active. And it is so deep with revelation for you and me, we will never run out of revelation in God's word. You know that, right? Like, we'll never run out. Like, God's word is living And so in the same way that like you and I, when we're in relationship with another person, you know, you'll never know that person, your friend or your future spouse one day, 
you'll never know them completely, fully, 100%. The more you spend time with them, the more you're gonna learn about them. In the same way, that's how God's word is. The more you spend time in it, the more you get from it. Does that make sense? Even the parts of God's word that you think you know pretty well, like John 3.16, who knows John 3.16? You might hear that and you're like, yeah, I know that. I've heard it a thousand times, but God's word is living and active. So that means that the more you get into John 3.16, you meditate on John 3.16, I promise you, God will show you something unique and different about it. I love this quote from Pete Gregg, just to start us off with this series. He says, in rabbinic tradition, Jewish tradition, every word in scripture is considered to have 70 faces and 600,000 meanings. Okay, think about how many words are in the Bible. Pause. Think about just how many words are in the book of Romans times that number by 600,000. That's how much revelation is in God's word. Now, that's not like a literal scientifically proven thing. That's just a picture to show us like God's word is infinite. Does that make sense? It's forever. And the more you get into it, the more you get from it. So with that being said, as we go into this four-week series on the book of Romans, we are just scratching the surface, y'all. And what I hope this series does for you is just gives you a taste of Romans that makes you want to go back for more, okay? So I just want, okay, are you guys awake tonight? Okay, just making sure, just making sure. So we're going to be looking at some major themes in this book, and I want to start us off in Romans chapter 3. Turn with me. I'm going to jump straight in. Romans 3, verse 10, here's what it says. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Somebody say not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes but I want to skip down. I know that was kind of depressing, but let's skip down to verse 23. Look where it says, for all, somebody say all, all All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, but all are justified by his, what's that word? Who's paying attention tonight? What's that word? Grace. Grace as a gift through the redemption of, that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a nice Big, juicy theological word right there. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If you're taking notes tonight, I'm titling this message, Unlikely Convert. Unlikely Convert. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. But before we get there, would you bow your heads with me? Let's close our eyes. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're already here. You are already in this room. And if there's anybody in this room that does not know that, does not sense that, is not aware of that, God, I pray that every heart right now would be, a, would be made aware of your nearness. God, you are near. You are close. You are with us right now, and you are so ready to speak. And so with all of us, with our hands out in a posture ready to receive, we just say, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me tonight? I pray that you would open the book of Revelations with us tonight, Lord, and speak through me to every single student in this room. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Okay, I'm not sure what what comes to your mind when we read this 
passage of scripture that I just read to you where, where Paul basically just roasts the entire human race. He says, nobody, somebody say nobody. nobody. Nobody's good, not even one. Maybe for you, you hear this and you're like, dude, that's a little depressing. Calm down, Paul. Maybe you hear that and you're like, Paul is really harsh. He's a big fat meanie and I wish he wouldn't be so harsh to people. Maybe for you, you hear this and you think like, well, I'm pretty good though. Like, I'm a pretty good person. I say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I say yes, sir, no, sir. I say please and thank you. I hold the door open for ladies. I would consider myself a pretty good person. Maybe that's you. I don't think of any of those things when I read this passage. You guys want to know what Jackson thinks of when he reads this passage? Well, I think of October, the fall, 2013, my glory days. Now, you're probably like, Pastor Jackson, why in the world does this really depressing passage in Romans chapter 3 remind you of your glory days? Well, I'll tell you. Thank you for asking, New Song students. During this time, October 2013, I was in Bible college, and I was the drummer in a Christian hardcore band called Crucial Moment. Don't put that picture up yet, Kason. Okay. I was in a Christian hardcore band called Crucial Moment, and it was the fall of 2013, and we had just released our first EP. You know what it was called? It was called You've Been Warned, and it was so angry and Christian, and um, we, we thought we were pretty tough. And this was our first EP. It was also our only EP because nobody really cared about us. But we put it out. And um, I actually texted the vocalist in my band yesterday. And I was like, hey, dude, do you have any pictures of us from our Crucial Moment days? And he was like, dude, even if I did, I don't want to go find them because that's how cringy we were. Um, so I don't have a picture of us, unfortunately. Um, but I was able to dig up the album artwork of our EP called You've Been Warned. And I want to show it to you because it's just really great. Would you look at this? Uh, it's <laughs> crucial moment. You've been warned. And it, as you can see, it looks like there's a church service, but a bunch of hardcore kids took over and are tearing the church building down and moshing for Jesus. I, I think that's what's happening right there. Um, I don't really know. My buddy made it for us for free because we had no money. But the reason why I think of this when I read Romans chapter 3 is because we had a song called No Not One. And in that song, our vocalist, Matthew Tarpley, he literally just like yelled this whole chapter, chapter into a microphone while we all played like really fast and generic hardcore music under it. And um, it was really lame and not very cool at all. I hope none of you find this on the internet. It's floating around somewhere. And I just pray to the Lord God Almighty that none of you find this EP on the internet. Good luck. But, oh no, did you really? <laughs> okay. But, okay, so why, why, did it, why do I think of this? Well, because I guess there was something good that came up from this really cringy time in my life. And it's that every time I think of that song, I can say this whole passage from memory, because it's just like drilled into my mind. Now, all of you can stop researching this now. Please get your phones out. I see what you're doing. You're not being sly, okay? Put your phone away. You can do it after church, okay? But what does it have to do with the message tonight? Absolutely nothing. I just wanted to share that, because that's what I thought of when I was preparing for this series. It made me smile a little bit. And by the way, I can't wait for 10 years from now when you look back at you right now, and you think about how cringy you are. So... Just ready. It's coming, all right? It's coming. So 
Enough talk about my Christian hardcore band. Y'all ready to get in the book of Romans tonight? Let's do it. Okay, Romans. Romans is easily Paul's most famous work in all of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, it's his most quoted. It's his most prized book in all of the Bible. It's his most theologically dense book in all of the Bible, especially when it talks about this thing called salvation, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight, being saved, the process of what that looks like. And I wanted to just show you a few quotes from some famous like saints and theologians and their view of this book of Romans. I got a lot of quotes for you tonight. So if you want to get your phone ready for, for taking some pictures of these amazing quotes, you can totally do that. But here's the first one. Martin Luther says this, talking about the book of Romans. It is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute, absolute epitome of the gospel. In other words, you read Romans, you will know what the gospel is. Philip, hard last name with an M, he says, the book of Romans is the compendium of Christian doctrine. In other words, you will learn everything you need to know about Christian doctrine, doctrine in the book of Romans. Look at this one. John Calvin says, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage opened to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. You read Romans, you'll understand the flow of the Bible. Frederick Godet says, Romans is the cathedral of the Christian faith. That's a really cool quote right there. The cathedral of the Christian faith. Richard Lenski says, Romans is beyond question, the most dynamic of all New Testament letters, even as it was written at the climax of Paul's apostolic career. And the last quote, this is my favorite one. Samuel Coleridge says, Romans is the most profound work in existence. Dang, the most profound work in existence. There is no other book in the Bible that is better than the other. We learned this in Head in the Clouds, right? You guys remember that series? We need all of God's word and every single book in the Bible plays an important role in the whole story of God's, uh, God's story. But at the same time, there is something unique and special about the impact that Romans has had on the world. So before we dive into this first section in Romans, which I'll wrap up at the end with, which is Romans one through three, uh, we got to take some time to lay some context, some foundation for this unique passage, this unique book that Paul writes. Now, why is context important? Does anybody know? You don't have to answer it, but context is important because it helps us discover, okay, who was this writer or these authors, which is Paul and the Holy Spirit, right? Who, who were Paul and the Holy Spirit writing to? Why were, we, why, why were they writing this? And what does it mean for us? So we need to get some context for all of that. Um, and so this is going to get a little teachy. Y'all okay with me getting a little teachy tonight? Yeah. But guess what? I'm going to put the ball in your court. It's only going to be boring if you let it be boring, all right? So follow along with me. The book of Romans was never actually a book like we have it today in the first place. It was actually a letter. Somebody say a letter. It was a letter. It was one of the many epistles, which is the Greek word, for, the, for, for letter, epistle. It was one of the many letters that Paul wrote to a real church filled with real people, with real emotions, real problems, real needs, real hunger for God. They were just like you and me. And this was this letter for them. And sometimes when you read the Bible, it can feel like so 
otherworldly. It can, it can feel so high, and like the people that it's writing to are so far removed from, from where we are today. But this is why context helps us so much, because it reminds us that this was a letter written to a real church with real people in it, just like you and me. Context reminds us that the Bible is actually the most down-to-earth book in all of history. Amen, church? So Romans, though, Romans is actually a unique letter that Paul wrote um, because Paul wrote a lot of letters to church families. But the reason why Romans is so unique is because Paul had never actually visited the churches in Romans when he, in Rome when he wrote this. Like normally when Paul would write a letter to a church, it was to a church that he personally planted or it was to a group of family of believers that he often visited. But Romans is different because Paul had never planted any of these churches that he was writing to and he had never even been to Rome in the first place. He hadn't been there yet, but in the book he says that he wants to go so bad and he wants to be there. We actually, we actually don't know who planted the churches, the house churches in Rome most scholars believe that they just naturally happened after Pentecost, which is really cool. Like that's what should happen, right? Disciples making disciples, multiplying. And that's what we see happen in Rome. Look at what David Guzik says about this. Because of all this, Romans is different than many of the other letters Paul wrote to other churches. Other New Testament letters focus more on the church and its challenges and problems. The letter to Rome focuses more on God and his great plan of redemption. So you'll see this in all of Paul's other letters. When he's writing to all these other churches that he's personally been to and he knows the people in, the letters are a lot more like church discipline. But in, Ro in Romans, it's different. He's talking less about like how to operate in church and more about big theological com concepts like salvation. Look at what this theologian Morris says. He says, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates back to God. And I thought this was really cool. I found this as I was studying. The word God occurs 153 times in Romans, an average of once every 46 words. This is more frequently than any other New Testament book. In comparison, note the frequency of other words used in Romans. So the word law is used 72 times, Christ, 65, sin, 48, Lord, 43, faith, 40. How many times is the word God used? 153 times in this book. Romans deals with many different themes, but as much as a book can be, it's a book about God. That's really good. You should write that down. Romans is a book about God. It's not about how to do church. It's not about how to love your neighbor, even though it does have aspects of that. It's a book about who God is. And I don't think that's just a random fact for us tonight. I actually think knowing that tone of this letter is going to help us understand the rest of this book, which we're gonna get to in just a little bit. So that's the first thing I wanna look at when we talk about context, the tone of this letter. But that's not the only thing I wanna look at. I wanna look at the context of Rome itself, the location of where this book was written and who it was for. And it's important to understand that um, this is a letter to people in ancient Rome. Somebody say ancient Rome. Yeah. 2,000 plus years ago, Rome. That's what we're talking about. And we need to recognize that even though like we live today in a very like 
technology-advanced society, we need to recognize that we are not that different than the people in ancient Roman cultures. Like, we think that, I think we all think this, but we don't necessarily admit it. We think that the people in the Bible are dumb sometimes, right? Have you ever thought that before? Be honest. You, you read about the children of Israel, and you're like, guys, come on, get this right. Are you dumb? But you know, we all do the same thing, right? <laughs> so we think that, like, people in the Bible were like cavemen sitting around a fire just, like, grunting all the time. like. <laughs> but you know that the people in ancient Rome are a lot more like you and me than we give credit. Besides the fact that we have iPhones today and, like, one wheels and, like, cool technology to make life easier and more entertaining— I'm telling you, you take all of that technology away, we're the same type of people that we see in ancient Rome. And this is important for us to know because ancient Rome was a super progressive, super technology advanced city of that time. Like these people were not that much different than us. You know that during ancient Rome, it's estimated that one million people lived in Rome. One million people. That's a lot more people than the entire state of Oklahoma, right? Maybe there's a million people here. I'm not totally sure, but barely, if any. Rome was so, um, so much the center of culture. It was actually the center of Roman culture, politics, art, philosophy. When you think of Rome, I want you to think of Washington, D.C. Who's ever been to Washington, D.C. before? You've known it. You've heard about it if you haven't been there. It's the capital of our, of, our, of our nation. This is what Rome was like. It was a bustling city. And when I was doing some study on ancient Rome, I also I found this fact that I thought was really interesting about the way Roman culture thought about Christians. You ready to hear this? The way Roman society looked at the small group of people that lived there called believers. Sam O'Neill says this, the people of Rome were tolerant of most religious expressions. However, that tolerance was largely limited to the religions that were polytheistic. So they were tolerant to religions that believed in more than one God. Here's why meaning that the Roman authorities didn't care who you worshiped as long as you included the emperor. So in Rome, you were expected to worship and idolize the emperors in Rome. So they tolerated your religion as long as you also said, hey, Caesar is God, or whoever the emperor was, their God. Now, think about this. This is so wild to think about when you think about the context. Christians made up a super tiny percentage of that one million people in Rome. And yet, even though they made up such a tiny percentage, they made a huge splash in the Roman Empire. Why do you think that is? Well, here's why. It's because the emperors did not like the fact that Christians were the only one who would not bow to whatever emperor was there. They said, we would not do it. They were, they were like, we only serve one God and you are not him. And not only that, but the more that they started to be bold about their faith and say, we're not bowing down to whatever emperor is above us, the more they would start to be persecuted for their faith. And I want you to imagine what it was like being a Christian during this time, because there were some emperors that persecuted Christians so terribly. There was one, this is kind of gnarly, so just get ready for this. But Emperor Nero, the persecution got so bad for Christians under his rule that he got to the place where he was burning Christians in his garden for light at night. Like, can you imagine being a Christian during this time in ancient Rome? Like, think about this. I want you to really put your shoes in them, for, put yourself in their shoes for a second. Listen to me. If you were a Christian and you said yes to Jesus, 
it was a lot more than just like raising your hand in a service. Like if you said yes to Jesus, you were saying, God, I'm willing to lay my life physically down for you, not just spiritually. And what I find about this kind of environment in Rome is it's actually not that different than the culture that we find ourselves in today. Now, hear me. I don't know anybody personally who's been burned alive for being a Christian in America. Like, we're not experiencing that kind of persecution today in America, but Christians are experiencing something similar to this Roman government where our culture is telling us, you can worship Jesus as long as you keep it a private thing. Like, you can, you can be a Christian as long as you don't let that Christianity bleed into your entire life. As long as you do that, we're okay. Like, we live in a society and a culture that says, I don't care if you worship Satan or Jesus, as long as you keep that religion to yourself. And we experience a similar issue, a similar problem today in our, in our, in our, uh, in our society. Because if we're not careful, what I, want us to, what I want us to see tonight, you so students, is if we're not careful, we can allow the noise that's happening on the outside cause us to feel like, like we need to hide the message that we carry. We can allow the noise that's happening out in culture that's against Jesus, against the things that, that we stand for and believe in, we can allow that noise to make us feel like we need to silence and, and be timid about the message that we carry. We can start to think that the good news that we actually received isn't that good or people would want it. Like if the gospel was so good, then why don't people actually want it? I guess I'll just keep it to myself. And some Christians today what this is allowing them to do is it's allowing them to try and include things that Jesus is actually trying to save us from. And I want, you, I want you to write this down. It says this, it's easy to start hiding a good thing when the world violently says that good thing is a bad thing. I want to say that one more time because that's really good. It's easy to start hiding a good thing. And that good thing I'm talking about is Jesus, the gospel. It's easy to start hiding a good thing when the world violently says that a good thing is actually a bad thing. And sometimes, if we're being honest, New Song students, we don't share the good news. We don't share our testimony of Jesus or our faith or what he's done for us because we're actually not sure if it's powerful enough to change the people who are against it. And this is a similar struggle that the Roman church was facing because they lived in a time of heavy persecution. And this is what's so cool about knowing that little part of context. Paul knew what these Christians needed to hear. And in the first chapter in Romans, I want you to see what Paul says in regards to their persecution. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. Why did Paul put that there? Because he wanted them to know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of whatever Rome is telling me about Jesus. Look at what David Guzik says. He says, this is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel centered on a crucified Savior. He knows that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has inherent power. We do not give it power. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I don't give the gospel its power. It is power. Look at what Morris says. The gospel is not advice to people. 
suggesting that they lift themselves up. The gospel is not like, hey, follow God and try to like clean up your life. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that it is power and God's power at that. Y'all are not amening enough for that quote right there. So good. The gospel is power, guys. And Paul is trying to encourage a Roman church that's being persecuted. And they're starting to get that temptation of like, okay, man, Rome is getting pretty crazy about being uh, about Christians. Maybe I should be a little more timid about my faith. And what does Paul say? He says, no, 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 no. You serve a God who's way more powerful. Paul comes up and he says, you don't need to worry because the, the message you carry is power. He's trying to get them to see that it's only hard to walk with boldness when you think that you're the one that gives the gospel its power. And I'm going to say that one again. It's only hard to walk with boldness when you think that it's up to you to give the gospel its power. It's really hard to share your faith when you think that you give the gospel its power. But when you recognize that the gospel is power, not just that it has power, but that it is power, then you can walk like in a boldness with, that Paul has where he says, I'm not ashamed of whatever somebody thinks about me. I'm not ashamed about whatever culture says about the gospel because the gospel is power. And Paul says, guys, the Roman Empire, they have a form of power, but that form of power pales in comparison to the infinite power of the God you serve and the gospel that you carry. Students, do you know that this kind of confidence is available for you? And this kind of confidence is available for me right now. Like, you recognize that boldness is not a spiritual gift that some people get and other people don't. Now, what's our vision for this year? With boldness. We've already talked about this, but this, this theme, I don't know if you've noticed, comes up a lot this year. It's kind of cool. God's been putting it in front of us, and you know that boldness is not something that only bold people have. Boldness is for anybody who understands that the gospel was powerful before you ever received it. The gospel was powerful before you ever knew anything about it. And this gives you a boldness to say, I don't care what people think about me. And I don't care what people think about me sharing this good news with people. Like maybe for you, maybe you have a close friend who's like a staunch atheist. They're a really strong atheist. They do not believe in God. Maybe they think it's kind of lame that you believe in God. Has anybody ever known somebody like this before? Maybe seen somebody on TV like this? It's easy when you're around somebody like this who's a really hardcore atheist to feel like, okay, I need to like be a little timid around them and not be bold with them because they, they so hate what I believe. But Paul is trying to get you and I to understand that those are the very people we need to be bold in front of because we don't make the gospel sound good to them. God does that. I'm going to say that again. We don't make the gospel sound good to people that don't like it. God does that. God makes it sound good to people, not us. And this gives us a boldness to share it no matter what's in front of us and no matter who's in front of us. Now, this is good like head knowledge to know. It's good to know in your head that, that the gospel is powerful. But Paul, he didn't just have a head knowledge of the gospel power. He experienced the actual power of the gospel. He didn't just have an information in his mind about how powerful it was. He had a personal encounter with its power. And this is where we're going to take a quick little fun detour into Paul's life. 
We're going to go to the book of Acts, which is funny because we're in a series on Romans. And we're going to just pause for a second and go to the book of Acts and see Paul's conversion story. Who remembers what Paul's name used to be before he met Jesus? Saul. That's right. And Saul had a very real encounter with the book of Acts. And I want to get some context, not just for Rome, not just for the churches in Rome and what they were experiencing, but I want to get context for the dude who wrote the book in the first place. So we're going to look at the author. We're going to look at Saul and his conversion story. And I'm going to try and do something that dudes are terrible at. I'm going to try and multitask. Are you ready for this? I'm going to try and do this. I'm very bad at this. Um, but I'm going to try and multitask right here. I'm going to try to do two things at the same time. I want to look at Paul's story, his encounter, his moment where he got saved. That's the first thing I want to do. And at the same time, as, as Paul is being converted, I want to see the three things that we discover about salvation through Paul's encounter with the gospel. Does this make sense? By the way, if you're taking notes, you guys have some homework this week. You may re- maybe write it down in your margins. I want you to read Romans 1 through 4 this week because that's what this week's message is all about. So that's your homework. Go back, read Romans 1 through 4. But I'm going to read this. It's a chunky passage. Y'all ready to follow along with me? Yeah. I said, are y'all ready to follow along with me? Yeah. Okay. And I, I might skip around because it is a little bit chunky. I mean, it's really chunky. 35 verses chunky. So... We might skip around, but let's just see. We're going to go with it. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. If you've got a Bible with you, write that down, underline that, circle it. He was still breathing threats against the believers. He went to the high priest and asked him for some letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound in Jerusalem. Paul is literally trying to go kill and persecute Christians right now. He's on his way to Damascus to do this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, and hearing the voice, but, no, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. This was in noontime day, the, the, the highest point in the day, and Jesus shows up, and his light is brighter than the sun. Pretty cool, right? And he blinds Paul, or Saul, And so Paul is led by the hand and brought to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Okay, I'm going to skip through this, but if you know the story, it takes us to a different place, and we go to Ananias, and we're told that Ananias has a vision from God, and God tells Ananias, this random disciple, hey, there's a guy named Saul, and Ananias is like, I know who Saul is. And God's like, yeah, 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 I want you to go pray for him. And Ananias is like, God, do you know who Saul is? Like, if I pray for him, he might, like, pull me down and give me a chokehold or something. He's trying to kill me. And God's like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm actually going to change Saul's heart. I'm going to save him, and I want to use you. So long story short, Ananias obeys. He prays for Saul. Saul gets delivered. He gets healed from his blindness, saved, and baptized all in one one moment, filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And look at what happens directly after this. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Paul has been a believer for like 24 hours, and he's already in the synagogues proclaiming the Jesus that he was just against and just trying to persecute. How crazy is this? Is anybody awake here tonight? How crazy is this? This is crazy. I don't know anybody who's done that, any believer who like got saved and then like turned around and started preaching. That's really cool. And he's preaching about the Son of God, and I want to skip down to verse 26. Sorry, Casey, I'm throwing you some curveballs. 26, I want you to look at the, the, the posture of the other disciples who just found out that Saul is a believer. It says, and when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Do you blame any of those disciples? I don't blame them. They were just about to be persecuted by this dude, and now he's like coming around saying, I'm saved, and I love Jesus. And they're all like, yeah, okay. I'm going to need to see some fruit like before I let you into my crew. So if you could get on that and show me some fruit, then you can join our church. So they're a little hesitant, but look at this. Barnabas took him and brought him in to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and among them in Jerusalem preaching boldly. He is still preaching Jesus. Verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him, and when his brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And basically we find out that the church is just exploding now since Paul has been saved. Now this is a crazy testimony. Right, New Song students? This is the longest salvation story we get in the entire book of Acts. It's Paul's salvation story. And I want to look at this because in this encounter that he has with the person of Jesus, we are actually kind of clued into uh, three main aspects of the gospel that we see in Romans chapter 1. In fact, this is exactly why in, in Romans 1, Paul is able to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. He's not afraid to stand up against the Roman Empire because he's personally encountered the power of Jesus that gave him a new heart. And Paul doesn't just know that power in his head, he's encountered it. And so you may not have a, 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 a conversion story like Paul where Jesus showed up into your life and like knocked you down off your horse and caused you to be blind for three days, but all of us in this room should have an encounter with the person of Jesus. Like our salvation story should not include this. It should not be, I went to church and I realized that all these people were like good and I wasn't, so now I'm trying to clean my act up. That's a different gospel. You know that, right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is not, hey, go to church, try to be a good person, read your Bible. No, the gospel is you encountered the person of Jesus. He gave you a new heart and now you live differently. And if that's not your that, if that's not your testimony, if that's not your encounter, guess what? It can be. Because the person of Jesus is chasing after you. In fact, these are my three points tonight. The first one is this. I want to look at the three tenets of the gospel. That word tenet just means important aspect. Three tenets, important details about the gospel. The first one is this. God pursues. God pursues. Not us chasing after God. God pursues us. That's a very important detail. Look at this. Look at Paul's state 
when God pursued him. Look at where Paul was at. Acts chapter 9, verse 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Okay, that's where Paul's salvation story starts. Paul's salvation story doesn't start with him realizing like, man, I'm a really bad person and I need to get my acts together or I'm going to hell. <laughs> that is not Paul's story. Paul's story is I am trying to kill Christians and God showed up in my life. He, David Guzik says this, he wasn't seeking Jesus when Jesus sought him. We might say that Saul decided against Jesus when Jesus decided for Saul. That's really good. And this is a major theme in Romans that Paul is trying to get us to understand about the gospel over and over and over again. And it's that salvation, you need to know this, is not a human thing. It's a God thing. In any other religion, any other false teaching about God is the opposite. It's this. Salvation, you get it when you work hard. Salvation, you get it when you do all of the things, and hopefully when you see God one day, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But the gospel is radically different than all of those things in the sense that it has nothing to do with your performance. And it has everything to do with the work God did to get to you. The gospel is not about the work you do to get to God. It's about the work God did to get to you. Psalm 139 says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, uh-oh, God's there. If I make my bed in Sheol, uh-oh, God's there. Genesis 3, 9, look at this. This is after Adam and Eve did the one thing that God told them not to do. You ever read that and been like, Adam and Eve are dumb cavemen. Why did they do that? They had all the trees. Why did they do that? You do that too. You know that, right? I do that too. So they sin, they disobey God, and look at what God does. Genesis 3, 9 says, But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? In the same way that God pursued Adam and Eve first, and in the same way that God pursued Saul first, our story of salvation starts with God pursuing us, not us pursuing him. Why is this important for us to realize? Because pursuing takes work. I know, I pursued Haley before we got married. She made me work. Ladies, you better make a dude work for you, okay? Dudes, you better work for a lady, okay? I'm gonna preach right there, okay? Pursuing takes work. You have to see what you want, and you have to chase after it, and you have to work for it until you get it. This is what God does to you, and this is what God is doing to me. God pursues us. But who does he pursue? Does he pursue good people? Does he pursue church people? Does he pursue conservative people? Who does God pursue? Point number two is this. And I want you to see that these are a continuous point. God pursues point number one. Point number two, he pursues unlikely, unrighteous, and ungodly people. If there was a contest for who was going to be the next super apostle, guess what? Paul wouldn't be in that contest. <laughs> He would not be in that competition. He'd actually be the guy trying to kill everybody at that competition. And God saw Paul and was like, yeah, I think you're the guy. How crazy is that? God chose Paul, who was, guess what? An unlikely convert. And you are an unlikely convert. I am an unlikely convert. So much so that, that Jesus uh, and the early disciples, that he was such an unlikely convert that 
people were afraid of him. They didn't believe he was actually saved when he was saved. The church was like, I don't know if I can believe this. This is a little too good to be true, right? Why did these early Christians believe that this was too good to be true? Well, it's because they saw how bad Saul actually was. They didn't believe Saul was a real Christian because they knew how bad he actually was. And don't get me wrong, persecuting Christians is a really bad thing. But here's the trap that I think they fell into and will fall into if we're not careful. And it's that these Christians thought that they were better than Paul. They actually thought that they were a little bit better than Paul. And I want you to get this. This is an easy trap for all of us to fall into where we put good and bad on a spectrum. And we think that good and bad is a spectrum. And so we think like, well, I'm pretty good compared to that person. But like compared to my pastors and my, my parents and stuff, I could use a little bit of work. But you know that good and bad is not on a spectrum. And we don't compare good and bad to people. Good and bad is compared to God and who he is. And this is exactly why Paul says in Romans chapter 3, nobody's good. Nobody's righteous. No one understands. No one sees God. All have turned aside altogether. No one does good, not even one. And I'll see myself getting into this mindset sometimes. Sometimes I'm at the skate park. Some of y'all know I skateboard. And I'll be at the skate park, and I'll hear people say some of the saddest things. Like, I'll hear these teenage kids say things that break my heart. Like, break my heart. They'll say things like, like they're trying fentanyl. Like, fentanyl is a drug that kills people. And I'm hearing teenagers talk about this at the skate park, and it breaks my heart. But if I'm not careful, I'll see that, and I'll actually think I'm a little bit better than them. But here's the reality. Without Jesus, I'm in the same boat as them. I am only good because Jesus made me good. And if I'm not careful, I actually think that what I'm hearing from them makes me a little bit better than them. And that's not the case. The second thing I can start to think when I hear that from those kids is I'll think that, man, these kids are deep in sin. I think they're too far gone. But listen to me. God pursues unlikely, unrighteous, ungodly people. That means that these kids at the skate park that I'm hearing terrible things from are the very people God wants to save, the very people God is pursuing. Does this make sense? And this is why we need to understand the tenets of the gospel, because God doesn't pursue good people. God pursues unlikely, unrighteous, bad people. Think of the worst person you know that is not saved. God is pursuing them right now. And he wants their heart so bad, New Song students. And here's what he does. I want to close with this. Band, you come and come on up. The third point is this. Point number one, God pursues. Number two, unlikely, unrighteous, ungodly people. Here's what he does. Through grace that saves and redeems. And I want to just take this final point as we get ready to close. And I want to just tear it apart for a second. Through grace. Somebody say through grace. Through grace. Through grace. What does this mean? That means that the beginning point of salvation starts with God. He pursues us. The end point of God's salvation story for us is that he redeems us, so he takes what was bad and makes it good. But what's the meat in the middle of that sandwich? It's grace. Look at this. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified by his what? Grace. What is grace? Grace is the process of receiving something that you did not earn. 
I heard a pastor share this analogy, and I love it. I've used it before here at New Song Students, and it's the analogy of Ferrari grace. And it shows us the difference between what mercy is and what grace is. Because you need to realize that when you're saved, you experience mercy, but you, you really experience grace. So think about this. Imagine with me that I'm in my car, and I'm going 80 miles an hour in a 40. How many of you know I'm going to get the cops called on me? My boy Brandon Woodman is going to pull me over and take me to prison or to jail or whatever they're going to do for that amount of speed. I'm going to have to face a judge for the law that I broke, right? Right? Now, if I, if I approach this judge and I say this, hey, judge, um, I know I sped 40 over, but, like, I'm a really good dad. And, like, I love my wife. And, like, we pay our bills on time. So, like, could you just let this slide? Can the judge do that? No, because the judge isn't judging me based off of the good I've done. He's, based, he's, he's judging me based off of the law that I broke. So he has to give me the wages that I'm due, right? Now, here's what the gospel is. The gospel is this. You can avoid paying that fine if somebody bails you out. Somebody pays the fine for you. This is what Jesus did. He paid the fine for us, and this is mercy. So that would be me facing the judge and the judge saying, hey, good news. Somebody, some random person came in, paid your fine, you're free to go. That's mercy. But that's not what grace is. Grace is this. The judge looks at me and says, hey, um, somebody paid your fine, you're free to go. Oh, and by the way, in the parking lot, there's a Ferrari for you. They purchased it for you. Here you go. That's what grace is. And this is what we get at salvation. Like when you get saved, God doesn't just forgive your sins. He gives you a family. He gives you spiritual gifts. He gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you provision. He gives you favor. You get everything you need. It's Ferrari grace, right? This is what God does for us. And then not only that, the last part of that point is he redeems us. So that means he takes what was broken and he makes it so much better. This is exactly why Paul, 24 hours after he's saved, is preaching the gospel. You know, everybody in their normal mind would be like thinking this, oh, I can't preach because I just got saved. And Paul's like, I'm gonna preach because I just got saved. Because he knew the grace he encountered. This is what's available to us and to our World New Song students. And as we continue in through this series, man, I hope you lean in this year, this month to the Romans because you are gonna get some deep, deep nuggets of theology. And I'm so excited about it. And I wanna respond to this message right now. Would you guys bow your heads and close your eyes?